quickly and this understanding of needing him every hour. It's not just I need you in this time or I, ju I just need you today because things aren't going as well as I thought or I just I need you uh, tomorrow probably. Today I'm fine, but I'm probably going to need you tomorrow when something else comes up. Um, Song 638 in your hymn book, verse 1, I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. No tender voice like thine can peace afford. And then in verse 2, I need thee every hour. Stay thou nearby. Temptations lose their power when thou art nigh. I need thee every hour in joy or pain. Come quickly and abide or life is vain. And the fourth verse, I need thee every hour, most holy one. O make me thine indeed, thou blessed son. And the familiar chorus, I need thee, O oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. O oh, bless me now, my Savior, I come to thee. Uh, what I love about songs in this way, and each verse tells a story. Right? Each verse of so many of these um, hymns tend to tell a story, and you see the building, and you see a completeness and a fullness of these things, and you can almost see uh, the hymn writer, you can, this cry for himself even, and, and as you see so many of these uh, works, you see so much that is written, you can kind of read these songs and almost picture the person writing this as if the very person authoring that hymn absolutely needed the Lord as they're writing this song. How often do you cry out songs of praise or those things about who God is, saying, Lord, I need thee. And it's not just, I need thee. Okay, so I need God. I, I have to mentally tell myself, I need him. But working hand in hand with this song, you're actually saying, Lord, I absolutely need you. Do you need the Lord? And the answer should be a resounding universal, yes. Whether you know it or not, every person needs the Lord. And then to follow that up from, Lord, I need you, almost a cry of, I have no other place to go but to you. The promise in that last song that we just finished with, he will hold me fast. With all that is considered, he will hold me fast. Not he might or he's able to, but will never do it. He will hold me fast. Regardless of what is going on, even um, in, in the hymn that we just walked through, whether in joy or in pain, Lord, I need you. He will hold you fast, whether in joy or in pain. He continues to remain. Um, just beautiful things. And I know I should, not, I should know better than to take extra time. But I, I wanted to go back and look at those different verses as it, as it continues to tell that story. Uh, this morning, we're going to be continuing, uh, picking back up after this past week in Philippians chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Philippians chapter 4, and we're going to look uh, primarily at verse 8. And I wanted us to, uh, again, just kind of be reminded where we have been. Uh, we, we've talked so much at great lengths about rejoicing in the Lord and how the joy that the Lord gives is not based simply on our circumstances. It is not uh, merely, while things are good, I will praise the Lord and I will rejoice in Him. But in all things, giving glory to who He is. In verse 6, we walk through a familiar verse to many. Be careful, or anxious, for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, 
let your requests be made known unto God. An incredibly powerful, yet an incredibly simple verse of be anxious for nothing. And then we went to the teachings of Christ himself as he is explaining um, around those with great anxiety, great worry, and saying, why are you so anxious? Why do you need to be concerned? Does the Lord basically not provide for the birds of the air and the, the lily as well? Why then would you be so concerned? And we talked at great lengths about anxiety, and I think we all universally agreed we've all felt anxious at some point in our life. Uh, probably, chances are, this morning, some of us are sitting here very anxious about a litany of possible things. But Paul does not just say, hey, don't be anxious, deal with it. There's not an idea of don't be anxious, toughen up, man up, just pull yourself up. Instead, the answer, the response to anxiety is to, in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. How do we solve anxiety? How do we quell it? How do we refute this anxiety? We simply go to the Lord in prayer. And you remember we mentioned it is not our last resort. It's not like we try everything. We try what our psychologist has said, our counselor has said, what our spouse has said, um, our boss, our best friend, whoever it may be. And then finally we get to the end of our rope and say, you know what, I'm going to try to pray about it now. It should be our first response. Imagine going into a battle without any weapons, fighting an opponent with many weapons, but saying, you know what, first I'm going to try hand-to-hand -hand combat against this samurai. We're going we're gonna to go here. I'm going to go at him myself. Things aren't going well. Okay, well maybe I'll try and get a stick. Well now maybe I'll throw sand or some mud in his eyes. Try all these different options. It's not going to go very well. You go with what is the strongest thing at the very beginning. Those of you who appreciate samurais know sand in his eyes will not do anything. Just If any of you ever come across a samurai, you will not be able to throw sand in his eyes. I assure you of this. But I want to read um, a quote from a commentary from one of my professors um, from college talking about in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, in all of these things by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known unto God. It says, Biblical faith sees prayer as a counsel, not of despair, but of confidence. Not as a last resort, but as the open-handed, yet passionate and persistent integration of human hopes and fears into the redemptive purposes of God in Christ. He says, God seems to use our anxieties to drive us to prayer when our comfort will not. And I think we, we've looked at this as well, that often when things are going well, when we find great comfort and, and things are just perfect, it's the best we could ever imagine. Um, it's not as if we always dwell on those things and sit there consistently being thankful, but we can often just wander through as if it's not actually happening. And then when things turn around, we say, man, it used to be really good. Our comfort does not often drive us to prayer the same way that our anxiety does, and I think he's correct there. And then he closes uh, this section here in verse 7, as Paul writes, After making these requests be made known unto God, he says, And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And have you experienced 
this peace? Have you experienced this peace that does pass understanding where trials, circumstances, situations come about, and yet for some reason you're not shaken, you're not wavered, you're not beaten down, you're not hopeless, you're not just trapped in despair, but yet you sit back and you look at it and say, I should be greatly in anguish, I should be in despair, I should be troubled, but I'm content, I'm, I'm, I have hope, I continue to have peace. One thing uh, that often gets misunderstood is that this verse, this peace of God passing all understanding is often looked at as a consummation of all things. That this is only something to be looking forward to where we cannot ever have any peace of God today. As if the peace of God is only going to come at the end. But we do not need to wait for the end to find peace. Here he is saying, in your requests, in your prayers, in your supplications, with thanksgiving, let them be made known unto God, and the peace of God shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. This is guarding of your heart, guarding of your mind. Again, integrating ourselves into this purpose, into this redemptive plan. A great contrast to how, what the world offer, often will offer as far as peace. The world can only offer peace based on a favorable circumstance. How does the world tell you to find peace? Have a better job. Have, have better this. Find all the comforts. You need this. And yet, we, we know these people. We know the people that would, that by, based on the world's standards and metrics, we have all met people that the world would say, yes, this person should be happy. They should be uh, filled with joy. They should be completely content, having no anxiety or worry. But we've met some of them, and we see how much despair there can truly be and having all that the world has to offer, and yet still lacking any hope, still lacking any peace. What does it gain a man to gain? The, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Some of us have been there. Many of us have also seen this. But yet God himself gives peace rooted in his unchanging character. You search for peace in a job, what are you going to do when you lose that job? You search for peace um, in the way that your kids are going to be successful, what are you going to do when one of your kids maybe isn't achieving everything that you had ever hoped for them? What if they go away, they stray off to the side, and you built all of your hope and peace and confidence into a child, into a spouse, into a friend? Those things are going to change. But yet the peace of God passing all understanding is rooted in his immutable character. This peace is that which guards against anxiety. The first song that we sang from Psalm 91 on eagle's wings, this idea of protection, this is the peace which guards against anxiety. Christ is the stronghold which is keeping our hearts and our minds safe. Under eagle's wings, protecting us, guiding us, keeping us safe. And this peace is not just a subjective emotional feeling or sense of calmness where we can only feel peace if we really feel this emotional whirlwind of peace. Some of us, we, we have peace, and it's not as if we're going up and down. We're not swinging all over the place trying to find peace. It's not as if uh, we can just base all of it based on our subjective feelings because I think we're aware by now are all feelings from God. Just because we feel something does that mean, oh, God gave me this feeling? 
Our emotions can lead us astray at times. Emotions can also be incredibly profitable at times. God has given us emotions. We are not to completely disregard them, but they should be informed by what we know to be true. This morning in verse 8, we're going to be looking a lot at the mind about what we are to consider, what we are to be thinking about, and as we always come back to, our feelings should be subjected to the way that we consider, to our mind, that they should be informed by all things. Again, we can go back to it. How many times have you ever been wrong about something? A few times. Let's say give or take three. Say universally, we've all been wrong three times in our life. Sometimes that stirs up some emotions that will go two times in our life. May have been the wrong emotion because of a response to things. Had we had more information, had we known what was actually intended, what was true, the way that we feel about it, may have been different. Here our text, Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. In verse 9, those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, do, and the peace of God shall be with you. Here Paul gives a, a strong encouragement to think, to dwell on, to consider all of this list of things. We're not going to go uh, one by one and, and greatly elaborate throughout all of these different things. Again, there's a lot of self-explanatory uh, concepts here. Uh, I think we all know what honesty is. We can ask our children, what does it mean to be honest and, and telling the truth and all of these different things. We understand it. But a question this morning is, have you truly thought about, have you truly dwelt on, and have you truly considered all of these things? Have you considered thinking upon that which is true and honest and just and pure and lovely and of good report? Because this is not always our natural inclination. We're not naturally inclined in our flesh to just say, hey, all I want is truth. Because sometimes the truth doesn't profit me anything. And so sometimes you might be enticed to say, you know what, let me fudge the numbers here a little bit. In business, to kind of skew things or to maybe be a little dishonest in the way that we're going to conduct ourselves. Well, maybe it's not just, but I really want this to be the case. I know it's not a just punishment, but I'm mad. I'm upset. I want it to be different. Yeah, I know it's not lovely, but it's, it's good enough. We can go all the way down this list and see different things, and we can think of circumstances that we may not have always thoughtfully considered each and every one of these attributes and said, you know what, let me just slide the scale a little bit off to the side. It's not 100% true, but it's not completely false either. It's mostly true, so that should be good enough. Think, dwell, consider all of these things to continuously set our mind on those things, firstly, which are true. This call to consider truth is rooted in the simple fact that Christ himself is truth. It's a constant struggle, and as we kind of mentioned in the 
uh, Sunday school that falsehood is the currency that is dealt by Satan, is it not? I mean, go back to the garden. What's the first thing he's trying to do? Hey, is that completely true? No, I don't know. Starts offering a little bit of falsehood here, and it looked very, very similar to what was actually true because the best counterfeit looks just like the true thing, doesn't it? A constant struggle that we have is in dealing with falsehood, and this is the, one of the primary things that Satan is going to deal in. And so when we consider truth, we cannot just disregard falsehood. We can't just ignore it. We can't just look around and say, well, that's just not something I'm going to even be aware of. We must, in pursuing truth, be willing to refute that which is false. Now, this is a sticking point for a lot of people because it's, well, if you tell somebody that that's not true, they may not like it. They may not like you. Isn't it mean to tell a person that what they said is not true? Kindergarten teachers spend the entire day doing this. Don't lie. Be honest. Tell the truth. As a parent with young kids, we're constantly talking about truth, honesty. When I'm a parent of older kids, I'll be constantly talking about truth, honesty. All of these things are important, but what does it say about the church and about Christians if we're simply only to engage in truth, but yet sit by and watch falsehood fly right in front of our faces everywhere that we go to hear it constantly and just go, that's a shame, but yet never offer any correction for it. You may know the truth. You may know it's a falsehood, but does everybody else? Does a person less discerning know whether it's true or false? A person can come along on Easter Sunday morning as a pastor and say, listen, there's a lot of visitors that aren't usually at church. We're going to talk about the resurrection, but guess what? It may not have actually happened. It's more of a symbol. It's kind of an allegory. It's just good language. He didn't really raise from the dead. That's ridiculous, isn't it? And a person sitting in the pew who's only there on a Christmas or an Easter could sit there and go, you know what? It's not important that he did actually do it. It's the idea of the matter. And the more discerning person will say, no, this is incredibly important. If he was not actually raised from the dead, there is no conquering of sin and death. There is no resurrection in the end. There is no eternal life. This is not one of those uh, side issues. This is an absolutely important gospel-centered issue. But the less discerning person does not know that. We've all heard language. Some of you have lived longer than me. Spoiler alert. Politicians come along, they say certain things. I'm only 27. I could hear things and say, hmm, I don't know how I feel about that. You could come along having experienced decades of this and say, listen, I've heard that before. Here's what happened. You're more discerning on things because you've heard it, you've seen it, you've been around it. You're not so much fooled anymore as maybe we were when we were younger. This is why he is imploring them to consider and to be thoughtful on those things which are true, which are pure, which are just, and we continue on down the list. Because you cannot embrace truth without being able to be discerning on what is true and what is false. So a question that naturally comes up, okay, consider those things which are true, great. So what is true? Depending on who you ask, you're going to get a different question. You're going to get a different answer, right? 
Um, we've talked about it at great lengths before. Nowadays, truth is just kind of whatever you think it means, what's true for you, may not be true for me, but you can't tell me I'm wrong because I get to determine what my truth is. I think the sky is pink and yellow. You don't know what colors I see. Truth being relative is one of the greatest things, which is not new, by the way. It's a frequent thing that we uh, humans like to do. One of the greatest dangers that has crept into the church in the last, we'll say, 10 or 15 years. Simple answer to what is true, John 17, 17, your word is truth. Psalm 19, 9, the judgments of the Lord are true. Psalm 119, 151, all your commandments are truth. So when someone comes along and says, well, what really is true? We can look at all these other things on the side. We can argue back and forth, and we can try to be clever, or we could simply say the word of God is truth. This is why in the Sunday school we're walking through, how can we trust the Bible? Why do we trust it? It's the only thing you can trust. It's the only thing we have that is objectively true. The word of God is truth because God himself is truth. We see this again as Jesus came in John chapter 1, and we, we see as John outlines these things, he came full of grace and truth. So Paul is not just concerned, as we've addressed as well in Colossians, with just how a person is going to feel, but to thoughtfully consider those things. For, for many, uh, church on a Sunday morning is to be able to come, to free our minds from any intellectual thought, to just be able to come, to be uh, refreshed, to have some emotional uh, tossing around, and just to be able to, to be, to be free from thought, free from consideration. But as Paul himself commended the Bereans, what did he tell them? He commended them because they sought the scriptures to see that those things were so. He did not say, I commend you for detaching your mind and simply embracing all that I said, free of thought, free of consideration. The person who tells you, now, I don't want you to think about these things. I just want you to believe it. Not somebody you want to listen to. The common trends of, of mystifying people through emotion and having this um, whirlwind of emotions where it's detach your mind, we're going to play the music in a certain way, we're going to uh, make it a theater, we're going to make everything so theatrical. Completely forget any mental engagement, just feel these emotions, and as we all feel the spirit at the bridge of a song, that's where God is. As if God cannot be in the preaching or the reading of his word, that you have to create or conjure the fact that God is abiding with his people. The mind is such a critical aspect of what Scripture is constantly encouraging us to be engaging in. Proverbs 23, 7, For as he thinks within himself, so he is. What do you think about regularly, day to day? Where does your mind tend to wander to? What do you thoughtfully consider? For as he thinks within himself, so he is. That which we are constantly dwelling on is largely where our heart is also going to be. In Mark chapter 7, verses 20 through 23, Christ in teaching on this himself said, And he said, That which cometh out of a man, that defileth the man. For from within, 
Out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, and he continues all the way down the list and says, all these evil things come from within and defile the man. Scripture is clear that our conduct and what we are is a product of our thoughts. This is why we are to carefully consider all things. We don't just get to walk day to day uh, just saying, you know, I, I have peace with God, things are fine, and we just wander through just emotionally responding to each and every circumstance that takes place. Are you thoughtfully considering those things which happen daily? Are you thoughtfully consider, considering that which you study in your devotions, what you hear in the radio, any sermons that you listen to, any preaching, teaching, hearing of the Word? Do you consider those things? Not just, hmm, how do I feel about that? But is it true? Do I believe that? Every Sunday morning, everyone should come. We should enter in when the preaching time starts. It should be okay. I have to absolutely engage my mind right now. I have to be focused. I have to pay attention. I need to consider these things because I do not want to be led astray. I do not want to be deceived. I do not want to fall into falsehood. It would be so easy to come in up here and say, look, I'm, we're going to tell some jokes, going to say some awesome stories. You guys are going to be able to have emotions all over the place, and this is going to be great. You're going to feel God this morning. The word wouldn't need to be involved. You can conjure up emotions. We've all seen it. How important it is to thoughtfully consider all those things which are true. Sadly, many churches are focusing so much on emotion rather than a preaching and teaching of the word. They're focusing on answers to questions as being pragmatic. Does it work? The question of is it true is replaced with does it work and how does it make me feel? If it makes me feel good and it's actually going to work, then it must be true. Well, look at Adam and Eve in the garden. It felt good for them to go and get the fruit. They were excited about it. They wouldn't have done it thinking this is going to only be bad for us. Hey, it feels good. And we'll see if it works. Culture has defined truth as whatever works or whatever feels good. If you're familiar in Matthew uh, 16, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for demanding a miraculous sign. Remember this conversation? Jesus, do something incredible so that we know you are who you said you are. God, I'll believe if you show me something amazing. And he just says, no, if you didn't believe on the prophets, you didn't believe what was written, you're not going to believe me even if I do these things. Even if a man is raised from the dead, you're not going to believe it. Man, how many times when I was younger did I say, God, I will absolutely believe in you, live my life to follow you, if you show me that you exist. Probably once a week, right? I mean, didn't we all kind of do that? God, if you show me something incredible, I'll absolutely believe in you. And you know that one sin, oh, I'll never do that again. Get me through this. Get me out of this situation. I'll never do that again. Two weeks later, look, I know what I said, but you know how I am. This is what is true. He is saying if, you did, if they did not believe what was written in Scripture, they're not going to believe a sign. This is why the resurrection didn't change everybody's mind in Scripture. 
It's not as if, hey, the tomb is empty. They're going, they're preaching and telling everybody this. You don't see a whole nation converted. You see individuals, you see people. What more miraculous sign would a person need than a person being resurrected from the dead, not the next day, not a few hours later, three days later? That's pretty good evidence for me. Yet it still meant nothing to so many people. And the counter is often when, when someone is encouraging the use of someone's mind within a church setting, within uh, Christianity. It's, you know what, I thought you guys didn't think about things. I thought Christians are supposed to take things by faith. You're just supposed to believe things, as if faith requires some uh, completely blind faith, where it's, I have no reason for what I'm going to attest to. I'm just going to believe it because I feel like it. How much of Scripture is history? All of it, except for those things looking forward, right? A large portion of it is history. It's evidence. It's facts. It's this is what happened, not just from one person's narrative and viewpoint, from many people's opinions and viewpoints. No one questions uh, as much to the same degree historical documents that we find about the wars in the past, about politicians in the past, about other documents. We say, well, that must be true. It's written. Of course it's good. Scripture records history, and all of a sudden, no, that's not enough. That's not good enough. We believe because we've also seen evidence. No person is going to believe in the resurrection unless there being an evidence. I mean, consider the gospel accounts. Consider just the resurrection itself. How much evidence is there attesting to that? God didn't just say, hey, just believe I did it. Don't ask any questions. It's, look at all that I have done. Look at how difficult it would be to do all of these things that I have said I was going to do, prophesied about hundreds of years before, and look at all that Christ perfectly accomplished. It is impossible for any other answer other than God did this. Christ is God. He is who he says he was. In no other area do we ever require this amount of evidence. Any lawyer would look at this and say, yeah, I'll take that case because I'm going to win it, no question. The judge is going to laugh at why we're even in court right now. This is all contrasted, again, of consider these things with, with the unsaved mind. And Scripture makes it clear what the unsaved mind is, the mind apart from Christ, the mind without the Spirit. The unsaved mind is depraved. That's in Romans 1. It's focused on the flesh. That's Romans 8. It's hostile to God, Romans 8. Foolish, 1 Corinthians 2. It's futile, Ephesians 4. Ignorant, and Titus 1, it's defiled. Our mind was affected in the fall. Not just our hearts, it's our minds too. Think about all of your thoughts. Are they all pure, holy, blameless, true? No. Okay. I'm a pastor, but mine either right? Like I said last week, how many of us want all of our sins or even just put all of our thoughts up on these three screens from the past week? Someone else is first, right? It's so crucial that we constantly do engage our mind and hear this exhortation to consider and to think on these things. It's at the end of verse 8, um, the original rendering would have this at the beginning, this imperative to think on these things, and then we see the listing. Think about what is true. Constantly consider those things that are true. 
that are honest? Do you allow your mind to dwell on things that are not true, that are not honest, that are not just, that are not pure or lovely? Because as he thinks within himself, so he is. In MacArthur's um, commentary, there's a, a paragraph in, um, from Martin Lloyd-Jones, and I just want to read a little bit of it here um, in closing. Talking about the disciples in Matthew chapter 6, and as he goes through the sermon, as he's teaching them and, and saying all of these things, how they, they failed to truly understand what he was saying. They allowed themselves to be controlled by their circumstances. And here's what he says. He writes, Faith is primarily thinking. And the whole trouble with a man of little faith is that he does not think. He allows circumstances to bludgeon him. That is the real difficulty in life. Life comes to us with a club in its hand and strikes us upon the head. And we become incapable of thought, helpless, and defeated. The way to avoid that, according to our Lord, is to think. We must spend time, spend more time in studying our Lord's lessons in observation and deduction. The Bible is full of logic, and we must never think of faith as something purely mystical. We do not just sit down in an armchair and expect marvelous things to happen to us. That is not the Christian faith. Christian faith is essentially thinking. Look at the birds, think about them, and draw your deductions. Look at the grass, look at the lilies of the field, consider them. The trouble with most people, however, is that they will not think. Instead of doing this, they sit down and ask, what is going to happen to me? What can I do? That is the absence of thought. It is surrender and it is defeat. Our Lord is urging us to think and to think in a Christian manner. That is the very essence of faith. Faith, if you like, can be defined like this. It is a man insisting upon thinking when everything seems determined to bludgeon and knock him down in an intellectual sense. The trouble with the person of little faith is that instead of controlling his own thought, his thought is being controlled by something else. And as we put it, he goes round and round in circles. That is the essence of worry. That is not thought. That is the absence of thought, a failure to think. So I know that that was a lot. Anxiety largely keeps us from thinking, doesn't it? We get anxious. We sit. We watch and say, God, you're going to need to do something. I don't know what to think, what to feel, what's going to happen to me. I feel beaten down. And we just sit. But why is it? Why is it that we are then to go to God? Because we understand who he is. We know what he's done. This peace that he is going to give us will be guarding our hearts and our minds. And in the songs that we sang, he will hold me fast. When you are bludgeoned over the head by life, and you will be. He's not just talking about his own personal experience. This is something that many of us understand. Think on these things. Think on what is true. Yes, yeah, circumstances are bad, but rather than be anxious, how about I consider those things which are true? And what do I know to be true? 
that all things work together for the good of those who love him, that he is my rock, he is my salvation, that he is the rock of ages. We can go all the way down the list. That is the first response. Got to look at what all is around me. My head hurts. Nothing is going right. Everything is miserable. But I know who you are. I will consider, I will dwell on, and I will think on all of these things. That's Colossians 3. Set your mind on things above. So how then are, do we, are we to interpret all that we see? What are we to engage our time in on those things which are true? On those things which are honest, just, pure, lovely, and of good report. And at the end of verse 8, he says, if there be any virtue, and there is, this is not a if there is, so let's look for it. It's a since. Since there is virtue, since there is praise, think on these things. And then in verse 9, gives the simple for the people who need something to do. He says, those things which you have learned and you have received and you have heard and seen in me, do. Man, you want another, you want a point with all of this? Do those things. Think on these things, and your last point is, then do it. Because what point is thinking about everything to learn all of these things, but to never actually do it? That's the illustration of, well, uh, just trying to be stocked up as library books to be put on a shelf, never to ever be opened or used, just collecting dust. Saying, oh, I'm a thick volume of learning and of knowledge. Never being used, never pulled down off the shelf. We are to be actively working out and living out these things. As we commissioned with not complaining many, many weeks ago, the encouragement of try not to complain this week. Here we have an incredible encouragement to think on all of those things that are listed, to think on those things which are lovely, which are true, which are beautiful, which are good, which are just, all of that. Dwell on those things. It's not, it's not easy, it's not going to be perfect, but that is where we are to spend our time and our thought. And that is going to shape the way that we live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for all that you have given to us. We thank you that as we've come to know you and as you've taken us from death into life, from darkness into light, we thank you that you have not only redeemed our, our soul, but you've even made us capable of thinking on things that are just, that are good, that are pleasing to you, that we can consider and thoughtfully consider those things which do honor you, that do reflect your character and your attributes. We thank you that you have given us the ability in your spirit to consider you, to be able to see you as you are. We look forward to the day where we can truly see you as we are kneeling before you, seated on your throne in all of your glory and singing with all the angels and all the saints of old as well, praising you before your throne. 
the way that you so justly deserve now. Lord, we thank you that you are the one and only God, that there is no other like you, that there is no other God. We thank you and praise you that you have revealed yourself to us and that you have given us your church of, of others that can gather around with one another to be able to promote this consideration of things which are true with one another, that we're not left isolated, we're not islands all trying to be gathered together, but that you have unified us together by the work of your Son and in the Spirit that we are joined together as we are joined with you. We thank you for the union that we have with Christ. We thank you for the redemption that's offered, for the redemption that was accomplished on the cross, and that, that the cross was not the end, but that Christ did raise from the dead, and that he has ascended to heaven, making intercession for us. God, I ask that you continue to encourage us this week, that you would give us the awareness and the desire to thoughtfully consider all that has been said, all that has been read and discussed, and that we would forever consider all things in light of who you are and what you've done, that the church would be a people who are thoughtfully dwelling on those things which are good, which are true, which are pure. God, I pray that you would continue to guard us, guard your people from, from falsehood and from deceit, that you would allow us to know that which is true and that we would continue to go to your word as we are discerning. Father, we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. As Mrs. Pace um, plays, just offer the moment of considering, considering what are these things that Paul has listed.